If I was invited to assign a title to this lesson, to this portion of Matthew, I might call it, The Kingdom of Heaven is at Hand. Of course, this message was introduced earlier in this gospel, but chapters 9 through 12 describe in word and deed what it means to be kingdom people, what it means for those who follow Christ and what it means for the larger world, what it means for this kingdom to be at hand. I'd like to remind all of us that in Matthew, Jesus usually speaks of the kingdom of heaven, not because God's kingdom is in a place far removed from this world in heaven up there somewhere, but because the author is sensitive to his Jewish audience who would have wanted to avoid speaking God's name out of reverence. In the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the kingdom Jesus speaks of is not far off somewhere, but among us, near, even in our midst. On one level, Jesus himself personifies the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And we catch glimpses of this in all the ways that he embodies God's love and justice and mercy in his words and in his deeds. His coming in the flesh is the kingdom in our midst. This kingdom, though, is also a proclamation from Jesus and is a way of describing God's authority over all that is. We could say the kingdom of God is something that comes into this world, that transforms this world through grace, grace working in us and through us as it did in Christ. Has it reached perfection in our midst? No. But it is nonetheless part of the fabric of our world that will one day be woven in complete harmony with God's will. And that will one day be experienced in its fullness. As a source of hope for all Christians, the kingdom of heaven is also a mandate for participating in the transformation of all things created, visible and invisible. As I made my way through the assigned chapters of Matthew for this lesson, I certainly recognize many familiar passages, as I'm sure you did as well. The beauty of studying God's Word continually is that we discover some fresh insights, sometimes from our own prayerful reading, sometimes from commentaries by respected scholars, and sometimes in our discussions in Bible study groups. This time, I found myself struck by two overarching themes that I'd like to explore a bit with you. One theme is the authority of Jesus to proclaim the kingdom and how that authority is expressed. And the other theme that struck me is the reaction of the crowds as they witness Jesus' actions or hear his teaching. When we think of authority, we probably call to mind a rather typical definition such as the power or right to direct, to make decisions, and even require obedience. Understood in this way, authority could also be expressed as control, power, or jurisdiction. We might imagine a military officer or a corporate boss or a master teacher. Their authority is real, but it usually stems from their position or the functions of their role in an organization. When we speak of the authority of Jesus, I think we have to develop a deeper understanding of the term. The English word originates in the Latin term octor, which is usually understood as originator or even author. So this would imply that someone with true authority possesses it as part of his or her very being, with the capacity to like, create the framework to interpret what is going on around them. 
We might speak of this as some kind of inner authority, that sense of self that goes beyond the role we might have or the responsibilities that we are given. Jesus possessed such inner authority, and in the process of tapping into his inner life, he affected change in people, in their health, in their understanding, in their very hearts. His authority is rooted in his divinity, in his intimacy with the Father. The external authorities of his day were the Pharisees and scribes, and while Jesus was surely schooled in the Mosaic law that they taught and protected, he drew from an internal authority that allowed him to shed new light on the law and to interpret it with clarity and a certain largeness of purpose. So how do the passages in these chapters of Matthew demonstrate the nature of Jesus' authority? While my list is not exhaustive, these are the things that I noticed. First, Jesus exercises authority in how he possesses and exercises the power to forgive. The very first story, often referred to as the healing of the paralytic, actually begins with Jesus forgiving the sins of the paralytic. That's the crux of the issue as the scribes begin muttering that Jesus is blaspheming. Who is he to forgive? The healing is to perform to prove to them that Jesus has divine authority, that he is, in fact, not blaspheming. I can't help but be struck by how often we want outward signs. We want provable evidence over the internal transformation that cannot be seen except over time. The scribes, like many of us, if we are honest, want something to wow them, not something that will stretch their very small images of how artfully engaged God is in the world and in the lives of his people. A little later in this lesson, in chapter 12, the scribes and Pharisees will go so far as to demand a sign from Jesus, something again that will prove his identity. And he will give them a sign, but will have to wait until after his crucifixion. Second, Jesus exercises authority by including those who are usually considered outcast or ignorant or disobedient to the law of Moses, basically sinners. In this lesson, we see this in the scene of Jesus eating in Matthew's house. Matthew himself is a tax collector for the Roman government and would have been shunned by many. Others like him shared the meal that Matthew provided for Jesus. We also read about the woman with a hemorrhage who approached Jesus for healing. According to Jewish law, her medical condition put her among the ritually unclean, but her faith, and I would say her courage, put her among those healed by Jesus and soothed by his attention. Another example of the inclusion that Jesus offers comes in his testimony to the disciples of John the Baptist. The evidence that Jesus gives them about his identity and authority is that the blind regain their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news proclaimed to them. And one final example of the authority of Jesus seen in his inclusion is the story in chapter 12 where Jesus proclaims that all who do the will of the Father are brother and mother to him. They are family. Well, Jesus exercises authority in a third way, too, and this seems to be, on the surface, completely at odds with the way of inclusion. Jesus sets up a clear choice between him and those who are against him. I'll give you a few examples. 
When Jesus commissions the 12 in chapter 10 to go out and preach the kingdom of heaven, curing the sick and driving out demons, he also tells them that they will be opposed and that they are to shake the dust from their feet as they leave the unrepentant. After telling them that they will be persecuted, Jesus tells them in chapter 10, verse 34, do not think that I have come to bring peace upon the earth. I have come to bring not peace, but the sword. By these words, he is acknowledging that the gospel has the power to split a community, to, to cut between those who are willing to trust in God and those who only give lip service to such trust. The message is clearly that one's ultimate loyalty is to God, manifest in Jesus himself, even if that puts us at odds with those we love. Talk about a hard saying, a hard lesson on the authority of Jesus. Yes, his authority offers the grace of inclusion, but it is not a cheap grace. In his commentary on this passage about division, N.T. Wright says the following, which I will quote since I believe his words are so well crafted. He says, the absolute demand of Jesus brings us back to where we were in the Sermon on the Mount. It isn't the case that there are some fine ideas in the mind of God and that Jesus just happens to teach them a bit better than most people. Nor is it the case that Jesus came to show the way through the present world to a quite different one where we will go after death. No, Jesus came to begin and establish the new way of being God's people. And not surprisingly, those who were quite happy with the old one, thank you very much, didn't like having it disturbed. He didn't want to bring division within households for the sake of it. But he knew that if people followed his way, division was bound to follow. A fourth way that Jesus exercises authority is by sharing his authority with those closest to him, filling them with the gifts to teach and to preach, which becomes clear in other passages from Matthew, and also to heal and cast out unclean spirits, as we read about throughout chapter 10, one of the great discourses of Matthew's gospel. Throughout the gospel, Jesus makes it clear that his authority has little to do with status and everything to do with service, little to do with accolades and everything to do with humility and truth. When Jesus shares his authority, he also shares his responsibilities and hardships. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The call of Jesus in the lives of his contemporaries and in our lives today always comes with a certain trepidation. Surely we want a meaningful way to live. But just as surely, we would appreciate an easier path. Does there have to be a cross? Do we have to lose our lives in order to gain them? My mother would say, if these things were the way for Jesus, surely we can do it too. And she's right, of course. But that doesn't make it any easier. The very Son of God did not and could not avoid the cross or cling to his divinity, as St. Paul would say in his letter to the Philippians. By embracing the way that led to the cross, Jesus also embraced the way that gives us a fuller sense of the kingdom of heaven that is in our midst. He gave us the pattern of life springing from death. 
I indicated when we began this time together that two themes emerged for me in this lesson. One is the authority of Jesus that we've just discussed. And the second theme is the reactions of people who witness Jesus' actions or hear his teaching. The crowd reactions are not unique to chapters 9 through 12, but they caught my attention because I know the proclamation of good news is intended to evoke some response. That is one of the things that differentiates a gospel from any other type of writing. The author's intent to engage the reader or listener and to leave them wanting to respond in some way. One of the ways that I find myself pondering and praying with scripture is to imagine myself in the scene, sometimes as one of the disciples of Jesus, but more often as one of those who is witnessing these events as Jesus makes his way through the region of Galilee. When Jesus heals and forgives the blind and the lame, the sinners and the outcast, I find myself wondering how I would respond if I had been one of these people's touched by Jesus, or even if I had been in the crowds who gathered around him. We are told that the crowds reacted in a number of ways, in amazement and in awe, and by spreading the word to others and even following along where he went. Amazement is an interesting word for translators to use. I would guess that most of us use it to mean being astonished or having a sense of wonderment. And indeed, in the context of what people witnessed in Jesus, that could be its intended meaning. But did you know that the root of the word amazement is maze, which comes from Old English? And it usually means bewilderment or dismay, confusion, perplexity, disbelief, and even bafflement. Much like being in a maze where we're not quite sure where we entered or how we will leave. <laughs> Seeing Jesus stand his ground with scribes and Pharisees over Sabbath practices, watching him interact with those on the fringes, hearing him teach about the need for absolute trust in him, this had to be baffling and surely led some to contemplate his identity and the very truth of what he was preaching. Amazement might lead to growing crowds, but it will not necessarily lead to following what Jesus teaches. It will not necessarily draw people into a relationship that will be transforming. Awe is a bit different from amazement. One definition of awe is to be wonderstruck. What an interesting word. To be struck with wonder. To be filled with reverential respect. This is the kind of response that goes beyond curiosity and could very well lead to a deeper desire to know Jesus and to follow in his way. The Bible is riddled with sayings about the fear of the Lord, which is another way of expressing this awe-filled reverence. In the first chapter of Proverbs, fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Job proclaims that fear of the Lord is wisdom itself, while the psalmist teaches that salvation is near for those who fear God, those who are in awe of God. In the person of Jesus, those in awe could see God in flesh, God at work, God among them. Those who witnessed Jesus in action also responded by spreading the word to others. We can almost imagine how quickly the gossip mill began to run. He cured a blind man. He's arguing with our leaders. He eats with tax collectors and sinners. He wants us to lose our lives. He casts out demons. One thing is for certain. The advanced press he got surely brought people out to see for themselves 
whether this man was credible or not. And just as surely, some would have stayed in the amazement stage, while others would have moved into awe. The last reaction I'd like to ponder a bit is that some responded by following Jesus, not just across the landscape of Israel, but across the heartscape that led them to inner transformation. There is a brief but powerful passage at the close of chapter 9 where Jesus looks at the crowds who have followed him as he taught, as he healed, and proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. We read, At the sight of the crowds, his heart was moved with pity for them because they were troubled and abandoned, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the laborers are few. So ask the master of the harvest to send out laborers for his harvest. Surely Jesus was expressing the hope that those in awe would move from reverential devotion to reverence in action. I hope I would have been among the group who moved to get up and follow him, learn from him, imitate him. I hope that I would have been among the disciples in the early movement of Christ's followers, and I hope I am a disciple now as I live out my particular witness to Jesus in the midst of the world. I hope that for you as well. As you will discover in the next lesson, Matthew is the only evangelist to use the term ecclesia, the Greek term for the church. This fledgling community that followed Jesus through Galilee and up to Jerusalem, where they witnessed his death and his resurrection, became what we call the church, the community of believers, those who are called to follow and have answered that call. This is our community too, rooted in the historical experience of Jesus and extending through time as those called to proclaim the kingdom of heaven as Jesus did. When the followers of John the Baptist were sent by John to inquire about Jesus' identity, Jesus told them who he was by what he did. He proclaimed the kingdom not by a theological statement, but through his very presence and his actions. We are called in the same way to give flesh to the kingdom of heaven right where we live and work and play and pray. We can choose the kind of response we want to have to Christ, who is still living with us.